When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to episode 123 of Awards Chatter the Hollywood Reporters Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and today my guest is the brilliant actor Viggo Mortensen. The 58-year-old is, of course, best known for his portrayal of Aragorn in Peter Jackson's landmark Lord of the Rings trilogy, which spanned 2001 through 2003. But he was working for years before that, and he has done much of his best work since. I'm referring to his performances in three very different films with David Cronenberg, 2005's A History of Violence, 2007's Eastern Promises, for which he received a Best Actor Oscar nomination, and 2011's A Dangerous Method. His underappreciated work in John Hillcoat's 2009 literary adaptation, The Road. And, most recently, what is, in my humble opinion, his finest acting yet, in Matt Ross's 2016 dramedy, Captain Fantastic in which he plays a former college professor raising his six kids off the grid in the Pacific Northwest. For it, Mortensen has been nominated for the Best Actor in a Drama Golden Globe Award and is nominated for the Best Actor SAG and BAFTA Awards. A Best Actor Oscar nomination now seems likely. Over the course of a long and wide-ranging conversation at the offices of The Hollywood Reporter, Mortensen and I talk about a wide range of topics, including the many frustrations he experienced early in his career, when parts in films for major directors like Woody Allen and Oliver Stone wound up on the cutting room floor or in the hands of other actors, the series of happy accidents that led him to his star-making part in the Lord of the Rings trilogy and the challenges and rewards of the years he spent working on it and after it, what's at the center of his special relationship with Cronenberg, why he turned down an invitation to become a member of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences years ago but now hopes to receive another, and why Captain Fantastic, a project that almost got away from him, is so near and dear to his heart. So, without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So, whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Vigo, thanks so much for doing this and appreciate it. To begin with, we always just ask, where were you born and raised and what did your folks do for a living? I was born 
October 20th, 1958, in Manhattan. At the time, my parents, Grace, who was born in Watertown, New York, and Vigo Peter, who was born in Denmark, my parents, they lived on East 20th Street. And my dad was raised on a farm in Denmark and kind of a self-taught person, uh, high school dropout, ran away from home, got a series of jobs, met my mom, Plus, he was, had a job working in Norway. We ended up getting married, moved back to the United States. While she worked, he put himself through a business school in the United States, taught himself English, got in, and, and did a four-year degree in two years. Wow. And did a lot of night school and all kind of stuff. My mom worked. He ended up getting jobs in business, usually connected with agriculture, mm-hmm. which was what he knew, and... That's why, when I was a baby, we ended up moving down to South America, where where I was raised, mostly in Argentina, until I was 11. And my two brothers were born, one three years later, and one five years later, Charles and Walter. And so you, I guess it would... It would, could be described as an unconventional childhood in, in its own way, like the... Maybe unconventional, but I mean, I think for actors and people, maybe even directors, I don't know, but I've met a lot of actors, a lot of actresses who've had kind of uh, itinerant upbringings, you know, nomadic, maybe in some way, I don't know. It's possible anyway. Speaking for myself anyway, it's possible that this constant moving and having to make new friends and be exposed to different cultures made it easier for me to be interested in fantasizing about other ways of Mm -hmm. being and other ways of other types of people uh, or being interested in fitting in to to different models of, you know, families or languages, things like that, things that you have to, you don't have to, but it helps you as an actor. And so as you were growing up in these different places, was film, TV, theater, any of that a, a presence in your life or was that only later? Movies very much because of my mom. My mother always loved going to the movies, and she took me when I could barely walk <laughs> to the movies. And she took me a lot. And she, I, I would say that she is the person long before I thought I would even try acting. It was, you know, because of being somewhat timid as a boy and as a, even as a young man. It's not something I tried even until I was in my early 20s. But I, I used to love going to the movies with her. Uh, even when I was, you know, just really young, she took me to uh, big epics like Lawrence of Arabia and those kinds of movies. I was really, really tiny, and I loved going to those with her because she was she would really be into them and talk about the actors and talk about other movies they'd done and talk about story and you know. And I mean, I realize now she was talking about characters and motivation mm-hmm. and whether a movie was well-directed or not, but it was just, you know, fascinating. I, I loved it because my mom loved it, yeah. you know, I suppose. And she, whatever fascination I had for movie stories, she constantly encouraged that in me from a young age. So. Now, it wasn't, though, at that early point in your life that you were even thinking about no. the fact this is something you would do, right? That was only later. No, yeah, the only, let's see. I think when I was about seven... I was given a part, I think it was probably obligatory, but in a school play, it's about St. George and the Dragon, some kind of Christmas play, and I played the ass end of the dragon. In other words, <laughs> I was in the back end of this you know, gray flannel kind of bag and had gray 
socks on so that I, that I would I did the back legs. You know? <laughs> did you go method for this one? How did you? Uh... <laughs> it was very hot in there, and, yeah. and it was kind of weird just having my head against the other kid's butt, but right. the other boy. And um, yeah, it wasn't a pleasant experience. I no. wouldn't say it was a good. But I never really, you know, I had I I, I, I watched the you know the school plays and so forth when we moved back to the United States. That's where my mom split up. I remember in junior high one time. I was encouraged by a friend of mine who was always in the school plays and stuff, you know, musicals, whatnot. Mm-hmm. Uh, he said, you should try it. It'd be fun, you know, and then we could be in it together. And, uh, I said, I just, I wouldn't even begin to know how to stand in front of people and do that. But he convinced me, and I remember going up, and they just said, read something. And mm-hmm. There was a book, and it was David Copperfield, and it was like so, I was reading the first paragraph of that book several times because every time I would say two words they'd say louder and it was like <laughs> after the third or fourth time I just closed the book and ran off and that was my last experience until much later <laughs> you were always always the soft-spoken guy yeah, you know, as a kid. yeah yeah I wasn't I mean I had friends you know and I could get along with kids but I like to spend time on my own and you know I was kind of shy around in, in groups of people yeah you mentioned that your parents split up I think you were about 11 and from what I've read, past interviews and, and articles and whatever, it A, wasn't all that amicable, and B, it had some major implications on your own life, right? You, geographically, everything. Was that a was huge a thing? change. I mean, we're talking 1970, basically, and it was one of my life, you know, living for real mm-hmm. in the United States, even though I'd been born in Manhattan. I was a baby and went away right. to South America. Back then, it was a big change. It's not like now. I think it would, for kids nowadays, it would be hard to imagine what a complete severing of relations and culture that is, or was, because there was not only no internet, no iPhones, there's no cable TV, there's nothing. So I moved from, at that point, from Buenos Aires, uh-huh. the capital of Argentina, where I had friends and where... Like my two, well, I mean, my my brothers and I, we never spoke English ever until going to the United States. I mean, I could speak it. Yeah. I spoke it with my mom. And the middle brother, Charles, he and I could, we would speak English mm-hmm. sometimes if, if it was, you know, with my mom, but alone, we wouldn't. It just seemed weird. Yeah. And the youngest refused to, and my mom was worried. She would ask him things in, in English. He was like five, six at the time that we left. And he would answer in Spanish. He would answer correctly, but in Spanish. And she would say, I know you can answer me in English. Why don't you answer me in English? And then she would say, Vigo, why don't you tell your brother? And she goes, I, I, he's not going to do it if he doesn't want it. You know? And I would say, why don't you answer him? And she goes, because it's a garbage language. I go, where do you get that from? <laughs> so we moved up there. and uh, So there was no Spanish. We right. moved up to the Canadian border at the time. You know, uh, and there was no people who spoke Spanish. There was no real, the football I grew up with was soccer. And that didn't hardly exist. There was some in, in school, but it wasn't like you could watch it now, like you can watch everything right. on TV. So I lost touch with things that were, at the time, really important to me, which is my, my soccer team down there, the language, the culture, the food, the music, and most of all, my friends. Yeah. You know, So it was like a, a complete severing and a new start for me and my brothers. My youngest brother, the one who wouldn't speak English, 
once he got there, being the youngest, he adapted very quickly, and soon he knew all the slang, and he was speaking perfectly like any kid from northern <laughs> New York State, and stopped speaking Spanish altogether. I mean, he still can a little bit, but not, not like then. Right. I was old enough that it stayed with me, you know, a lot of memories, and the language, too, you know. Even though it was a little rusty years later when I started meeting people who spoke Spanish, uh, I still had the same accent, and I... Strangely to them, the first time I went back to Argentina, which was like 25 years after I'd left, people kind of laughed. They said, you sound like my dad. <laughs> you know, because I was using the slang, yeah. uh, frozen in time, right. my, 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 my way of speaking. It'd be like if some kid was transported out of Manhattan yeah, or Brooklyn or yeah. Yeah, in 1980 <laughs> and then came back now and started using all the slang. Right. And then people would laugh. Yeah, like, God, man, you sound like my weird uncle. Yeah, yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. So that's, that's what happened. But, yeah. So you, you eventually settled back in here. You came back when you were 11, I guess seven years later, roughly. It would have been time to go to college. And I just wonder, before and after your time at, at St. Lawrence University in New York, what did you imagine you were going to be doing with your life? Well, I always liked to write, and I used to like to take pictures, and I still like to do those things. I had a camera, and I used to write poems and short stories, but I studied Spanish literature, French literature, and government or political science. I thought I would probably end up with a career in you know, international re- relations and diplomacy or something. That was sort of a vague idea I had. And that's what I was studying, basically. Still in college, it never didn't occur to me. I mean, I still liked going to the movies, and I'd go to a play once in a while, but I didn't really have any inclination. And so what was the beginning of it? I think it was, I don't know why, it was certain movies that I was seeing, you know, when I was just finishing college, I started going to, uh, I did, you know, a year overseas, and, and in England, and also in Spain, I started seeing older movies, you know, going to sort of what we, I guess, call revival houses where you'd see different movie every day if you wanted to or every couple of days it'd switch and you know you have two other movies on the marquee and that was my first exposure other than something I might have randomly seen on TV either in Denmark where I spent some time as well I had a lot of family there mm-hmm. on my dad dad's side unless I'd randomly seen it on TV some old black and white movie I started seeing you know older westerns and movies by Berlucci's first movies, mm-hmm. movies by Ozu and Dreyer and Brisson, and it was eye-opener, yeah. and um, Pasolini, and you know, just all kinds of gems. And the combination of that, I suppose, of starting to look at movies as more as an art form, I suppose, but also specifically movies that came out around that time, mm-hmm. I guess, you know, would have been The Deer Hunter, mm-hmm. Autumn Sonata, you know, those those movies, there was something about the performances because of the way they were directed, but especially, you know, the performances of, if you talk about those movies, obviously Liv Ullman, mm-hmm. Ingrid Bergman, and then The Deer Hunter, particularly very young, Meryl Streep, in addition to, say, Chris Walken in that movie, but all of them, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, there was something... I, I just made a transition without even realizing it to walking out of a movie theater or sitting in a movie theater when it was over realizing I'd been transported and wondering how that worked technically. In other words, how, how was I so moved that it felt so real when it was well done, you know, the acting, and I guess now I realize the directing, mm-hmm. um, the photography, everything about it. 
that I, it just seemed real, that I, I was moved to think about my own life and my own family, my own country or upbringing, anything. Mm-hmm. What, what was the trick? So I was just curious. I was like, well, how do they do that? The ones who are really good at it. And so that's how I sort of dipped my toes in the, in the water, I suppose. I, I ended up moving to, back to where I started my life to Manhattan because of a girl that I was going out with at the time. And at that time, I was, when I decided to try it, which was after college and all that, I was living in Denmark and working there. And there was a girl I was going out with who moved to New York City, so I followed her. And I'd be, I was becoming more and more curious about this. And, and so I literally looked in the yellow pages. I did, that's how little I knew. <laughs> you know, acting, trying out for a play. And I saw this thing. It said, Actors Repertory Theater, Warren Robertson Theater Workshop. 44th Street. So I, I I called up. I said, so what are you guys, what's on? And they go, what do you mean what's on? I go, well, what are you guys doing? What's the next play? And they go, well, are you calling to audition? I go, exactly. I want to try out. And they go, well, there is a slot next Monday at, you know, 7.40 if you want to come in, but don't be late. And, you know, come in 10 minutes early, sign up, so forth. I go, okay, that's it. They go, well, you know, bring two pieces. And I go, two pieces of what? And they <laughs> memorize text, right. you know. And so I didn't dare ask any more questions. I just went. I thought, okay, I'm trying out for a play. Well, I said, you know, two the two two texts from from the play. I said, no, any any anything. Just bring two texts. And I go, okay. So I got something out of a short story by Isaac Dinesen. Some, you know, it was Jack the Ripper and one of her stories. So I cobbled together the dialogue from a short story. And then I sang an old, well, I sang it as a song, but it was an old Irish poem. That's what I did. And, and, then, was... and, and they looked at me like, mm. and I said, so what's, what's next? And then they said, well, we'll let you know, and this and that. And it seemed like a small theater you know so I went home and then a couple days later maybe even the next day they said okay you're you've been accepted the cost is whatever and it's twice a week and scene study class and I go what's the play there is no play it's scene study class and so you know that's how I started you wanted to get right into yeah hit the road running I didn't know anything but Warren Robertson was a teacher and he was I'm sure I was really really rough but he saw something and he recommended me and eventually I got an agent because of his recommendation. They came in, watched me. You know, that's just the way it went. Nice. So you get the agent, and I'm guessing that has something to do with why you ended up moving out to L.A.? No, that was also a woman. <laughs> <laughs> and the mother of, of my child. You couldn't Henry. do just do a simple like neighbor or something. It seems nah. these long distance. <laughs> no, I started working. I worked a little bit. I did a little bit of work on TV. I did a little bit of theater. My first, you know, sort of good break was on the same day, uh, 1984, I got a, I got offered a part in Shakespeare in the Park. Mm-hmm. They were doing Henry V, I think, and a part in Witness, like one day's work, basically an extra. It says one word, Peter Weir. Uh, and I thought, well, I'll do the play. But my representative said, no, no, you shouldn't. <laughs> You'll You're do in New York. You can do a play whenever right. you want. And, right. you know, it's not often Peter Weir comes through town right. and you get a part where you actually have a line. Right. As an Amish farmer. So I took the train down to Lancaster, Pennsylvania, and 
and did this one day. It was really a half day, and I was sitting at lunchtime, and he came over and said, can I talk to you for a minute? And I thought, oh, shit, I probably said the German <laughs> line wrong. Or, you know. And he goes, no, you look, you know, I'm just getting, I have this idea. You, there's a certain resemblance, and I think I'm going to give Alexander Goodenough's character a younger brother. And I go, oh, what do I do? I said, well, you're just, you're what you played today. You're an Amish farm kid, and and you just tag along behind him because there's this rivalry between him and Harrison Ford for mm-hmm. Killing McGillis, who Alexander Gurnoff's courting her, right. and then this guy shows up from Philly <laughs> and is a rival for her attentions. And you just watch that awkward situation. And I, I can't tell you how many days you'll work, but if you're available you know, for the next six weeks, I go, yeah, I'm available. <laughs> so I stuck around, and I got paid scale and, and learned a lot and saw you know, the best at work. It was a very calm set, very, no shouting. Everything got done on time, really well done. And people were, everybody was nice to each other. I thought it was great, great business. I can't wait to do another one. (laughs) You know, it took me about 20 years, I think, or more to to find a set that was that professional and and with no shouting and where a great movie was being made. So we should say that ended up being your big screen debut. But in fact, I think chronologically, wasn't it even before then that it looked like something else was going to be your big screen debut? Well, I had a couple. I did one student film that we shot uh, somewhere in Long Island. And then it was like an NYU student film. And then I did get cast in, uh, I did a lot of screen tests right away. I mean, many, many. I I almost got a part. I got the lead part in Greystoke, the Tarzan Mm -hmm. movie, and a bunch of other movies. What happened? I I don't know. just didn't get it. I mean, it happened to be about 20, 25 times in a row where I'd get to the down to two guys for the lead in a movie and I just, just didn't get him. You weren't getting specific feedback like that you could do anything with? I think that there was something that they thought was a little off or a little odd, I guess. I, I did hear that, you know, in a sort of a nice way that I didn't quite fit in somehow or that, that they found what I was doing in some to some degree appealing, but wasn't quite convincing enough, or I don't know what they were looking right. for to me, or maybe it was just bad luck, but that's what I heard. But I learned, you know, you know, it's frustrating, and you're thinking, well, what's, what am I doing wrong? But you're learning each time, because mm-hmm. you're seeing how they use the camera, and what they're expecting of you, and you do gradually get better at it. I did finally get a, a small a scene, a speaking part, with, and a scene with Goldie Hawn, and, and, and Jonathan Demme's swing shift, mm-hmm. and that was the first time I came out to L.A., I think we shot that. I guess it must have been 82 or something. And it was a good scene. I was like a young Navy uh, guy on leave in my white suit. And I was sitting behind her, and she was pining for her husband, played by Kurt Russell, who was away in <laughs> yeah. the South Pacific. And she's watching the newsreel about the war. You know, it's just before Christmas, I think. And she's watching the newsreel and thinking about him. And the newsreel is, of course, all the war stuff. And so she's crying, and she's upset. And I try to pick her up. You know, I got a box of good and plenty, and I rattle it in her ear, and I can't remember what I say to her. And she's horrified, and she runs away weeping. And I'm like, what the hell did I do? I thought it was good. But, yeah. but they, and then when I saw the movie, it was just her sitting there crying. And so oh, they geez. reshot it without me. And that uh, also happened with another movie. It was Woody Allen's yes. Purple Rose of Cairo. And that was an even weirder experience. But Oh, you got to tell. You, you can't tell. Like, yeah, come on. That was, well, he's known... For his secretiveness, you know, unless you're having, you have a lead in his movie, right. and maybe even then, I don't know, you don't immediately get to see the script or really know what he wants. Man, a few words. I remember going into the casting 
office where I was to meet him, Juliet Taylor, his mm -hmm. long, mm -hmm. lifelong, career-long casting director, very nice person. And she said, look, you're going to be going in, and don't take offense. It, it's not going to last long. He may say little or nothing to you, but that's not, it's just how he is. Mm -hmm. He just wants to see you. You know, this is, he saw your picture, and, you know, like he saw other people's, but he just wants, he gets a feel for the person right away. He knows what he wants. And so don't be worried. Whatever happens, it'll be quick, and that's it. I said, okay. So I walked in, and he, he looked up. And I sat, I don't think he said a single word. And I sit, and I <laughs> started to sit down, and he was watching to see how, I guess, how I would sit. He wasn't saying, don't sit, so I sat. Right. And I looked at him, and I think he might have smiled a little. And then I think he said, okay. <laughs> like, that was it, literally. And I walked out, and I was like, holy shit. And then the next day I heard I had the part. Which was what? I didn't know. You they didn't said, know? They said, well, it's a party, right. 1920s, Hollywood mansion. You know, and you're, you're, you're Cairo, yeah, yeah, you're a young actor at some Hollywood party. That's all I knew. And I don't even know if I knew it was a young actor. I knew it was a Hollywood party. Mm -hmm. So I go out there at the time. I had pretty long hair. So they cut it really short and mm -hmm. made me look like a guy from the 20s. Put me in this suit. It looked kind of cool. And I kept saying, so where's my um, my scene? <laughs> go, what scene? They go, well, like the pages so that I can, you know, the sides so I can. I'd like to be ready. I don't want to screw anything up. I said, oh, no, this, you'll find out soon enough. I'm like, okay, okay. I kept wondering when I'd yeah, find out. And yeah. finally, they, somebody comes to get me. go, okay, come on, you ready? I go, no, but yeah. <laughs> and so he takes me in, and they're all ready to shoot. It's all lit. And, and we walk into this cool-looking set, and everybody's dressed like me in that period, and plants, and people with champagne, and waiters, and it looks amazing. And there's Woody Allen himself. And he's talking to this other young actor, he's sort of whispering something in his ear, and then the other actor's nodding. And Woody goes, Okay, great, let's go, let's shoot. And then the first AD says to me, Okay, you, you're right there, that's perfect where you are. I'm just standing in the middle of the room, surrounded by all these people, crew and stuff. And I go, Well, wait, excuse me. And nobody's, I go, Mr. Allen, you know, and <laughs> what am I doing here? I go, What are you? What am I supposed to do? What do you want me to? What do you, do you want me to say something? Do something? Right. And he goes, just follow his lead, oh meaning the other actor that he'd been just whispering to and who was nodding knowingly, you know, and smiling. I'm like, okay. <laughs> so the act, they go, okay, action. And he walks, saunters over, champagne, and the waiter gives me one. So I'm like, okay. And uh, and he says something like, uh, so what's it like working with the mill? You know. How's it working on a new DeMille picture? <laughs> and I'm like, you know, this is so surreal. <laughs> and then I just started talking like I do sometimes if I'm not tired or nervous, right, just right. like you want to fill the gap. Right, and, right. Uh, so I said, well, you know, I just suddenly decided to choose to play what I was, which was kind of a dumb actor right. or an, an inexperienced actor. And I started talking about, yeah, well, it was kind of all right at first but then after a while I got tired because my arms were up and I'm hanging on this pole and I had this scratchy beard and I'm wearing like this diaper thing and then this guy's jabbing me with this pole and he's dressed up like this fucking you know this Roman and I like I was that's pretty solid improv that's, but I was yeah. talking about Jesus okay. without even realizing I was playing Jesus right, right. and then Woody goes cut and he was laughing he liked it he yeah. goes I love that yeah. and he loved that I was an actor yeah. so dumb I didn't even know I was playing Jesus right, right? <laughs> I don't know if we did know. I think he, I said, okay, 
He goes, that's excellent. He might have had us do one more, but I, if, I don't remember. I think it was just one take, and right. that was it. And I remember it was very cold. It was some mansion out in Long Island. It was Dublin for right. Hollywood. And I remember running out in the van with some other people, and that was it. I heard a couple of days later from my, my agent that he had really liked it. He liked the improvisation. He liked the joke, and great. And then as it happened with Swing Shift, you know, when I saw that it was about to come out, it wasn't like I was invited to right. any premiere. Right, right. And it was just like I saw in the paper, oh, Purple Rose of Cairo, yeah, that's the one. And so I, you know, told my mom, told my brothers, you know, this Friday, <laughs> look for me. There's a scene at a party. I'm not going right. to tell you anything else. Right. I think you'll like it. Right. Of course, I wasn't in it, and oh, I wasn't geez. in the credits, and neither one of them. And the second time it happened, which was, I guess, swing shift. And they said, what are you doing in New York? You know, it's like, you're obviously making this. They wondered what, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> what's like going on drugs. They thought you were imagining it. Yeah, it, would have been, it would have been great to be in either of those movies. They were both good movies, especially Purple Rose of Cairo. But it, it really, I mean, I watched the whole thing, mm-hmm. and then I was so annoyed. I didn't watch it again until last year I watched that movie really? again, and I really loved it. No, that's great. Really... That would That sense memory that will come back to <laughs> <Yeah>. you. <laughs> Nah, so uh, there's a reason for these things. I mean, you have to believe that, I guess. Yeah. Uh, and whether there is or isn't, I'm a believer and just learn from whatever happens, good and bad, especially from bad things, because when bad things happen, you often have something to do with it, having been a bad experience, <laughs> so learn how to do it better, right. you know what I mean? So let's let's recount for people that over the 16 years after those uh, the sort of false starts, yeah. you were quite regularly working as a major supporting character in in some big movies for some great filmmakers. There was Sean Penn's movie The Indian Runner, where you were the well, yeah, with few exceptions. I mean, there I was playing one of the leads. Yeah. Uh, that was a, that was looked like a big break. It didn't turn out to be because it wasn't a movie that anybody saw. It's now kind of a cult favorite. It was more popular, I suppose. In, certain circles in Europe and mm-hmm. overseas anyway than in the United States, but that had to do with the way it was released very poorly, as often happens, with movies that are tricky. And the only other time I played a, a big role was in a Rennie Harlan. You, you remember that, that director? Yeah. Finnish director yeah. who came over, and he'd done a movie, that action movie in Finland, and so he got this offer to direct a horror movie that takes place in a prison, very low budget, Prison movie. It's called Prison in Wyoming, in Wyoming State Penitentiary, a very old prison that had been shut down not so long before. And there I played played a lead role. And the Rennie Holland then later went on to make one of the, I guess, a Die Hard sequel. Mm-hmm. Or he did a couple things, and right. his movies tend to be very big, Yeah, I guess. But just to run off a few of these titles before I, I ask you the actual question, Sean Penn's Indian Runner, that's 91. Brian De Palma, Carlito's Way, 93. You were... Snitching on Pacino in that one, Crimson Tide for Tony Scott in 95, Jane Campion, Portrait of a Lady, 96, Ridley Scott, G.I. Jane, 96, on and on and on. So you're working with good people. These are movies that are being seen. Were you content, though, during those years with how things were going, or were you hungry for bigger parts, better parts, more of an opportunity to make a living doing what you'd hoped to do? I was learning, and I was, and I realized that, and I... And I took full advantage, for example, on Crimson Tide. You know, Gene Hackman and Denzel Washington played the two leads, and they had a real, not only the characters, but in some sense the actors too. There was a real kind of 
battle of wits and to some degree egos, mm-hmm. uh, I have to say. <laughs> and it was being filmed in Culver City, California. And at the time, I lived in Venice, so it was easy to get to work. And also, I didn't work every day, so I would go on my days off. You know, uh, Tony Scott was cool with that. He was a nice guy. Got along with him really well. And I would go just to watch those guys sparring. Mm-hmm. It was really great to watch. You know, two sty- two very different styles. But even their styles as a person, you know, Gene Hackman would always be on the set, sort of hanging out with the crew kind of guy, but very don't mess with him, mm-hmm. you know, kind of like a little bit testy. <laughs> and Denzel would be kind of waiting until the last minute in his dressing room or his trailer, and there was this, this sort of battle of... Yeah. <laughs> Stars and it was a weird thing, right. but then obviously they were both excellent actors. So even though they came at it from different points of view and different approaches acting-wise, they were both really subtle, uh, subtle and, and 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 very solid in terms of their craft. Mm-hmm. Obviously, so it was great to watch. But yeah, there was I would go to the movies all the time, and and I would see actors my age and even younger at that point who were getting to play lead roles and getting to be in movies that were good movies. And I felt in some cases that I could do it just as well. A lot of actors mm-hmm. probably felt the same way. And why wasn't I getting a crack at those things? You know, I had some close calls. One in particular, this was just before I moved out to L.A., was Oliver Stone. He tried to get Platoon made. Mm-hmm. He ended up making Salvador made before that. Yeah. But he tried to get Platoon made as a much lower budget movie. And I did auditions for him several times. And it was for the part that Willem Dafoe played. Okay. Which, as written, was like half white and half Lakota. Mm-hmm. It was like I had part Indian. Yeah. And at the time, I had very long hair. Mm-hmm. Prominent cheekbones. And yeah. Stuff, yeah. And so, but I took that really seriously. I read every book I could on Vietnam. I got, I was, you know. I got really obsessed. I liked the story a lot. I liked the part. And I got along with him. And then he videotaped me. And he cast me. So and he can't, yeah, and far he down can't, the process, yeah. Yeah, and he cast me. And he cast another actor in the part that Tom Berenger ended up playing. I can't remember who the other actor was. Mm-hmm. But he said, okay, well, i got to get the rest of the cast. i got to raise the rest of the money. And I'll let you know. But the part's yours. And I'm like, great. So I kept reading. I kept studying. And I found out later that he used our tape to raise money and raise Ugh. some, but it, he didn't quite raise enough. And then in the meantime, I think he brought me in to audition for, I don't know what the timing was, but I know I met him another time for Salvador. So you were looking at doing both of these potentially. But it, yeah, and I, I did, I think I did the audition in Spanish just to see if, mm-hmm. you know, whatever, because I don't look like I could, but I do speak Spanish because mm-hmm. of my upbringing, so... But in any case, none of that happened. And then I read in the newspaper, going into production, Platoon, and who was going to be in it. I'm like, so I called him. Yeah. Because I had spent the past year and a half preparing, reading everything. Yeah. Learning everything. I even considered, I don't know when they're going to start, but maybe I should enlist and, you know, in the military. Oh, my gosh. And, you know, like really, I mean, I was. I just you put all my eggs in that bag. Yeah. I was th- I th- the part was mine. Yeah. I knew that. Yeah. So I called him. I said, "What's going on? You're making. I read here. It can't be true. You're making the movie, but there's some other guy playing my part." And I go, "Oh!" And he sort of laughed. He goes, "Oh, no. I mean, it's just the exigencies of the business. I mean, you know, to raise the money and because you know he's just in a movie right now to live and die in L.A. Was that called or?" I 
think so. Yeah. Or something. There, there was a movie that shot in L.A. that Willem Dafoe was in, and that kind of yeah, yeah, yeah. made his mark. And I said, but, but the part was mine. And he goes, yes. I said, well, can I at least try out for it, you know, my part? to just reconfirm with you that I'm, yeah. I'm the right guy for it. And he goes, no, but even if you were the best guy, it's just because of the way the business works. That was kind of a... So he just jilted you. Yeah, but it's un, that's the way... I mean, it would have been nice if he'd contacted me, yeah. but but the reality of the business, I, I didn't understand. Jesus, well, he did after that. Well, that's the way it works. Oh, my you God. Know? So there is that catch-22. Like they don't want to... You can't get an agent or you can't get hired unless you have experience. But how do you get experience right. unless you're hired or you have an agent? Wow. You know? So that's that tricky. You just you do have to be lucky. That's brutal. But in the time that you wait, any actor, you have to prepare yourself to be lucky. And what does that mean? That means like working on your acting, doing plays with friends. Nowadays, with technology, yeah. you can make a movie. You can do all kinds of things without having to wait for someone to cast you. And you could then too. You know, do plays, do whatever. Do low budget movies. But keep active and be ready and be open-minded so that if luck comes your way and opportunity comes, you, first of all, are able to recognize mm-hmm. it and then do something about it or with it. And and so and so in your case, I uh, guess that happened with a call in 1999, I would assume. Well, I'd been around long enough that I'd, I was starting to make a living, mm-hmm. you know, just because I had done... Crimson Tide and some of these other movies you mentioned and G.I. Jane, A Walk on the Moon. Yeah. You know, so I was starting to make a living and I was okay with it. It wasn't a huge living, but it was it was fine. And you felt that was the you you intended to stick with it yeah. indefinitely. I, yeah, I figured I didn't know. I mean I I often doubted all along the way, well, maybe I should try something else. Because it was something I thought I would only do until I was probably thirty or mm-hmm. something. But I kept being interested in it, you know, the idea of storytelling through the movies and I had enough good experiences, like working, you know, with Diane Lane on Walk on the Moon. That was a really, I enjoyed that story. I enjoyed the characters. We we got along. It was, you know, and other experiences. I there were things about G.I. Jane that I found. I learned a lot mm-hmm. doing, you know, work, seeing how Ridley Scott worked, mm-hmm. and some of his crew, and you know, so little by little, I was I was getting. I was getting jobs and somewhat bigger parts and, you know, more responsibility. Yeah. Making my way slowly. But, uh, yeah, 99, the end of 99, October 99, I got the call about, about Lord of the Rings, and which I had not read. I had not read that novel, that huge book. And it was to replace another actor, and they were underway not only shooting. had been shooting, I think, a couple of weeks, but they had also been there. The actors rehearsing for months and, you know, doing horseback riding and sword fighting and learning elvish and whatever <laughs> other stuff canoeing and this is peter jackson that's calling you y- yeah or did he ever tell you how he came to think of you for this because it wasn't something like you where you went in for it or you lobbied for it or whatever right you just got a call out of the blue no i can't remember what the, he and probably his his wife friend walsh and and philippa boyens you know his sort of close colleagues all the way through that shooting in that trilogy and, and co-screenwriters they decided based on whatever I think Walk on the Moon combined with I don't know if G.I. Jane but mm-hmm. whatever they'd seen maybe Indian Runner I, I, don't, I have no mm-hmm. idea they thought I could be right but I'm sure they'd gone to some other people I mean it was a last minute replacement deal I don't know 
well, say talk to, but but they asked me, and I initially said, well, I just finished a job, and my son's just you know got started his new school year, and they said, well, would it, you'd be done by December, and I go, oh, of two thousand. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> they're like, saying three years, right? Getting, well, it was or no, two it was plus. a year plus. Yeah, uh, you know, like I ended up being almost a year and a half to shoot the whole thing to three, and they said, but you'd be able to come back and see your son every few weeks and uh, which ended up not being true at all <laughs> and I think they thought it was going to be a lot more organized and focused than it ended right, up being right. and I, I didn't want to do it. my son as most people like the trilogy know it's part of the lore but it is mm-hmm. true he was over, overheard me saying that I hadn't read the book and I felt that I wouldn't wouldn't be the ideal choice because I'd I'd be at a disadvantage as far right. as knowing what it was about and being prepared and I would be doing them a disservice And but thanks anyway and I said, well, think about it. We'll give you until tomorrow. I said, okay, thank you, but I don't think I'll, I'll call you back, but I don't think it's going to work out, mm-hmm. but thanks anyway. And then my son said, are you talking about... How old was your son at this point? He was 11. 11. Same age as when you... Lord of the Rings. Yeah. When your parents, yeah. yeah. Are you talking about Lord of the Rings? And I go, yeah, yeah, that's, that's what it is. Well, it's like a three-part deal. I don't know. It's this long thing. It sounds complicated. And he goes, what part? And I said, it. I think it was Strider, but I didn't even say that right. I said, it's like the walk, walking walker. I don't know what I said. Something. <laughs> he goes, Strider. And I go, yeah, that sounds right. And I go, the guy's, you know, he's lives in the woods and he's friends with these midgets or something. <laughs> I, I don't know. I didn't, I didn't really, I wasn't very well informed. And he goes, that is the future king of Gondor. And I go, well, whatever. <laughs> and he goes, no, Dad. You, got, you know, it was that kind of conversation. And I thought about it. You know, he was very passionate about it. And I said, well, it would mean being gone a long time. He goes, still, that's a pretty good mm-hmm. opportunity. And I mean, maybe I would have come around on my own, but maybe not. Now, you he were was influential. a single parent at that point? Yeah. And so how would this even logistically work? When you go away, it's one thing to... Well, I was a single parent, but we had a system where it was back and forth. I mean, if I had a movie to do, which I didn't... Had, I wasn't doing more than one or two mm-hmm. a year at most, then part of the time, depending if it was summertime or not, you know, Henry would come and stay with me, and then the rest of the time be with his mom. Mm-hmm. Because otherwise, we had a one week with me, one week, right, week right. with her kind of situation. And then we'd get together, you know, and the relationship was good. It wasn't yeah. like with my parents. Right. Uh, when when they split up during my week we'd get together at least once a week oh, that's know, nice. and have dinner together or go to a movie together or something. That's nice. and I'd do the same in her yeah. weeks usually and when she would go on tour she's a singer mm-hmm. then he'd be with me so we'd you know we'd just adapt yeah. and I'd call her I said look this is the deal I'd be gone but I supposedly I'd be able to come back a lot she goes well no it sounds like a good opportunity and I had her blessing and his so I decided to do it and, and so the uh, day after getting that call offering you the part you're on the plane to New Zealand pretty much or for two days after mm-hmm. I mean it was pretty immediate I mean I had enough time to go out and find the book I went to the bookstore and got this huge thing <laughs> started reading it on the plane long plane flight 12 13 hour flight and I read I started I started going through it pretty quickly my first read through and making notes but I realized it wasn't completely alien. It was similar to things I'd read as a kid or had read to me even, especially in my dad's family and like uh, Viking stories and sagas and sort of Celtic stories. It, it wasn't unfamiliar from things I'd read as a kid. 
and I could see certain archetypes from some of the stories I knew that, that Tolkien was using, including mine. You know, he, there was something of Sigurd and the dragon slayer and that kind of mm-hmm. character and the Volsunga saga, I remember, you know, thinking, oh, yeah, that's what's going on here. In fact, I went out and bought a copy of it and a couple other sagas that I could find yeah. in Wellington, New Zealand when I got there and I was sort of comparing and, yeah, it was a very, it was a very quick immersion and <laughs> just get to it. And, and once you were there, was do I remember correctly that they sh- you guys shot all three at once? There wasn't like a break between the no, three. No, it was all. It was at first. It was mostly the first movie, but then it started becoming a mix, and you'd jump from one to the other all over the place because we'd have to shoot. You know, when there were certain scenes that were winter or whatever season in each of them. Or summer scenes, and if we were at a certain location, then we'd shoot whatever was happened there when we could. And it was at first it was very structured, and it became less and less so because as they realized they needed to add more (laughs) units, and there were crews. There was by the end, the last month was really crazy. There was just to get all of basic footage shot, knowing they knew that we would have to be doing some reshoots, and it turned out to be a lot. Mm -hmm. You know, on and off for the next two three years. We shot all over New Zealand in beautiful wild places. It was great, great experience. And we would we'd have to jump all over the place in many hours and you know, people sort of making up stuff as they went along. The, the crew, mostly New Zealanders, but with a bunch of experienced Australians thrown in, some Americans and English people. But the bulk of the crew was were people who were learning how to make a big movie Jeez. on the job. Because they didn't have that experience in, in New Zealand. Some people listening might not know that most movies are shot out of sequence. But when you're talking about three movies, probably cumulatively nine hours right. worth, of, when you're talking about shooting out of sequence where you're doing the beginning of the first and, and the end of the night. Maybe 11 hours, you know, if you have the extended what, right. versions, right? Was this an acting challenge that you were prepared for, in a sense, or did you also have to kind of learn on the job? How to, oh, yeah, I yeah. think we all did. Even, even, you know, the veteran actors like, you know, the Ian McKellens or the Bernard Hills mm-hmm. or Christopher Lee, mm-hmm. you know. I mean, it was because even though Peter Jackson had a, a lot of or most of it in his head, I mean, he's a remarkable person with a remarkable brain, it was very chaotic it became more and more chaotic as they realized that there was never going to be enough time to get everything shot and they were and also they knew that when they got the go-ahead that the first script was in pretty good order but the second and third were saying they were a mess would be unfair (laughs) but they were really all over the place and it had bore no resemblance to what ended up being shot fortunately and what ends up being the movie so that was stressful and you're like and you're getting rewrites, especially when you're working on stuff that's in the second and third movie, as you're getting being made up. It's like, well, your speech has changed, or now you have a speech, or now you don't have a speech, or now you're, you know what I mean? It was like just winging it. A so lot did of the you time. feel in the in the doing of it any degree of confidence that this was actually going to be well received? I thought that it would it would be good because I just the intensity with which it was being made and the care that went into the art department, the look of the costumes, the look of the, the sets, you know, Rivendell and Helm's Deep and just the detail, mm-hmm. the weapons, the care with the speech, even if lines were improvised yeah. all the time when we were, you know, calling some elfish expert in the middle of the <laughs> night and saying, look, we're on the set and we've added this line and 
how would you say phonetically? And then you'd be listening on the phone, you know. We didn't have the technology we have now where right. that would have been easier. So How about CGI? That was had you ever dealt with that before? Hardly very, 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 very little. Maybe once or twice in mm-hmm. but a very limited to mm-hmm. a limited degree. And on that movie there was a lot used. And in the second and third movie increasingly more and more as Peter Jackson really developed a fondness for that. And it wasn't what you have now exactly. It was a lot of green screen. Uh, you know, now you know, people shoot lots of stuff, green screen, blue screen. But the technology, I mean, Peter Jackson and his team were making up things that now are commonplace. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they were, they were making, rewriting the rules to some degree in terms of shot making and, you know, forced perspective. And then lots and lots of green screen stuff. As they got, as Peter became more confident of his team's ability to work with computers to generate images or retouch images. Then he got more and more into that, that aspect, I thought, as, as he got into the second one and the third one. And then with the hobbits, it was like an entire world of CG. What was good about it was especially was the, the sense of teamwork and the reliance on people that you'd gotten to know really well and gone through thick and thin and good weather and bad weather and, Today we're faced with this obstacle where we have to pretend we're in this cave and there's all these stairways and there's this monster and this and that. And, and you just were doing it together. And when you had to do it alone, the crew was your friend too. I mean, yeah. because we were so far from Hollywood or the filmmaking world, even though Australia was across the Tasman Sea, it was might as well have been the other end of the planet. There was no other movie really happening. You know, there was no... You know, and. Other than token fanatics, there wasn't an expectation or even a really a, a big awareness that we were doing this down there, you know. I think I that, remember McKellen, he had done this podcast about a year ago, and he was saying that somebody was, there was some, like, lone blogger that was following, following you guys or, like, so amazing. Yeah, like, but it was like a nerd kind of yeah. thing, and it wasn't like it was big news at all we were just doing this thing down there there was an awareness in the business that it was happening but very vague because meanwhile seasons were coming and going and opening days and box office results and award shows and then on to the next year as we kept right but then when the first movie came it was really at the Cannes Film Festival 2001 Mm -hmm. where they invited the main cast in conjunction with the presentation of 20 minutes of cut footage from the first movie I think Exclusively, they showed that to the press, and it was like it made a big impact. Was that your first time seeing it as well? Yeah, it was like uh, stuff from the caves of Moria, and some fighting, and some impressive CG stuff, and then landscapes of New Zealand. I mean, it was a really good selling point. Went over very well, and then that made them feel okay. Maybe we've got half a chance. Yeah, the movie will come out at the end of the year in December two thousand and one, and. And we'll see. But it wasn't, you know, people look back now and like it was a sure thing. I don't think anybody knew it was going to be the huge success it became. I, I do remember at that Cannes Film Festival at the party after the presentation, mm-hmm. one of the producers was talking. I was talking with him and someone else. And they were saying, yeah, we're worried about Asia, though. And I mean, in terms of worldwide. And I go, what do you mean worried? And they said, well, I mean, Japan, for example, they don't have this. I mean, they don't know Tolkien. I go, yeah, but that's, I mean, I, this story is universal. Yes, the foundation is Celtic and Northern European mythology and history, but 
the the, the archetypes you mm-hmm. find them in samurai mm-hmm. stories I mean particularly look at the elvish world I mean mm-hmm. that's total samurai yeah ethos and fighting styles all kinds of stuff I don't think you'll have a problem in that regard but from that to knowing how well it would do everywhere I don't think anybody knew that if they say that now I think that's (laughs) yeah revising history but but it wasn't it was bumpy even up to the because I remember when we had to go do the big US junket Mm -hmm. for the big launch we had to fly those who were flying into New York it was September 11th you uh, flew on September. No, like, I, was, I was just about to leave for the airport, and then, you know, I was you know having my coffee, and then the TV, I saw what everybody else saw, and I sat down. I went, whoa, you know, oh my god. And then I did go to the airport, and it was like locked down, and no, there's nobody flying, and and then I found out eventually got a hold of somebody, and you know, and they said, no, 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 it's the junk gets canceled, and we don't know when it's going to be. So wow. it happened month or so later and yeah wow that was it was a little bit up in the air what's going to happen so so the fellowship of the ring did come out in i guess mid-december of, of 2001 with good reviews and all of a sudden immediately really great box office but it wasn't for sure it was a very dark period yeah. in terms of just the history of this country climate, and the world yeah. what was going on it wasn't yeah. so long after you know the twin towers and the pentagon and everything else and the the impulse to to do something about it and wanting revenge and just the ins- the uncertainty of our times and but people really went to it and maybe it felt like almost as an escape or to to understand you know to be have some good guys against right. a bad guy who knows or so this you idea think of the timing might have really it helped, have helped. To I'm not sure it's hard to say I no mean, but that's really interesting but the second year is where it got really heavy because. December of 2002 was when the two towers were supposed to come out. And I remember the producers even saying, yeah, the I don't know if we can call it that. Yeah. You know, like, well, you got to call it that. That's yeah. what Tokyo yeah. calls it. <laughs> you know, and fortunately they didn't. Right. The Revenge of the Towers. And do that. Yeah. yeah. Or some yeah. other. <laughs> so, yeah, it did come out. But that was even more intense in mm-hmm. a way because, you know, fall of 2002 was when the Bush government was lying to us knowingly and making up, you know, that there was, you know, weapons of mass destruction and the, the rush to go to war in Iraq, which has caused a multiplicity of, of problems mm-hmm. in the world, not only in the Middle East and in this country, and basically pretty much bankrupted this country financially and in terms of reputation. It, it's a, that, was, that was a huge mess that started then. But anyway, that movie came out. There was a huge expectation because the first one had done so well. Right. It had become just like a cult classic immediately. And mm-hmm. so each one, it was like, it was a very festive thing yeah. to each release. People had, you know, viewing parties and made big lines to go see and, them. And buy It tickets. must have been so weird for you too, though, because so you guys shot from 99 into 2000. Shot and all of 2000. And then I stayed on a little and, bit into and shot a little bit in 2001, the first part, and then went home. But then we... Once they showed these 20 minutes at Cannes, I said, okay. Then they brought us during that summer to New Zealand to shoot more stuff. Some more so stuff. To make sure that the movie was really good because they knew they had to make, they knew that the second and third movies were all over the map. Right. They were not ready and not going to be ready. And they needed to, they would need to do massive reshoots to right. make those things work. And the only way that they were going to get more money to do, to reshoot more was if the first one was a hit. If the first one had not been a hit, who knows if the other ones would have even come out yeah. in the theaters. I mean, or to that degree, certainly not. 
And so it was a big hit. Yeah. So then they got more money. So then we went back the summer of 2002 and shot a whole bunch more spring and summer. But meanwhile, in 2003, when... 2003, again, had to shoot enormous more. amounts for the return of the camera. And what would have happened if one of you just said, sorry, I got other plans or, or, you know, or God forbid, one of the older actors had passed away or something? Really? What would they have done? That would have been difficult for them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so in 2003, though, when the third one which ended up winning the Best Picture Oscar mm-hmm. and a lot of others. When that came out, you were seeing yourself probably for the first time some of the, some stuff that you had done as early as 1999, right? Yeah. It's just such an un, yeah. unusual thing it to happen, weird. I think. Mostly 2000, but yeah, you yeah. Know, a few years earlier. Some of the younger ones is where you would really see like the, some of the ones playing The Hobbits. They... You know, you would see a slight evolution if you were watching carefully. (laughs) He looks a little different. (laughs) (laughs) I know you said nobody expected it to be the success of the magnitude that it was, but you cultural or the cultural impact. But when you were doing this, it had clearly felt bigger than anything you'd you'd been a part of before. So were you prepared for what would happen when the first one came out? And obviously, you're the face of this franchise. You're the it's going to have well, a big impact. I would say it was really Elijah Wood's character, Frodo. Okay, so Certainly you're for face. the first movie. Right. And one of those. One of them, yeah. That was obviously going to elevate your level of fame and recognition and whatever in the world. Was that exciting, concerning? And, and then when it actually happened, how did I you handle I it? I didn't give a lot of thought to it. And I don't think you probably know what that's like unless it does happen. Mm-hmm. Or whether it's in, you know, politics or sports or right. any kind of field. Public, where you're, you have public exposure. Or where your body or your face is what's sold, in, in, in some sense. It was great that people were into the movie and that people liked what we were doing. I was very glad that my son, first and foremost, liked what we'd oh, done yeah. because he was really into me doing yeah. it. And he thought it was, it was that we captured the spirit of Tolkien regardless of whatever liberties we'd taken or that uh, Peter Jackson had taken with the original texts. But as far as the the onslaught of just no matter where you went in the world, literally, that people looked at you like they knew who you were and came up to you, it's like, wow. It's just sort of... But to some degree, you get used to it and you figure out, okay, there's certain times of day or certain places that you just move through and you don't hang out or, or don't go with like an entourage. I'm not like an entourage kind of mm-hmm. person anyway, so... There's to a certain extent you can't if you're in a hit movie and you're one of the faces in the movie, you're not going to avoid it. But if most people are decent and if you treat people respectfully, but if you make a big fuss about not liking it or make a big fuss about liking mm-hmm. it, then yeah, you're going to get a lot of attention, negative and positive. Mm-hmm. And you know it is what it is. But I, I never lost sight of the fact that it was. A, a good break, yeah, you know, yeah. because for me and the other actors and even the crew members who were part of this overnight success, mm-hmm. it would help us, it would give us other opportunities work-wise, and, you know, it was a good thing. And it helped me do other things. You know, I started Percival Press. This is your publishing You know, house. I've been for years, I've been doing poetry readings and photo exhibitions and even exhibited paintings in different galleries. All of a sudden now, a lot more people were coming. And I would... Think and hope that it gave certainly you and probably a lot of other people the a little bit more 
financial freedom to not feel that you had to do a, a part unless you really yeah. wanted to, right? Well, I'd always tried to, I mean, at the beginning, it's you got to get whatever experience you can, whether it's just auditions or any part. Just learn as you're doing. I mean, you know, because you can prepare and study and read and rehearse all you want, but until you're actually doing it, and especially when it's, you're talking about movies, there's there's no way to get past the wobbly knees and the sort of yeah. how it distracts you and makes you feel awkward to be either at a mic if you're talking radio or but in front of a camera as an actor it's just a weird thing and until you sort of make friends with the camera or able to sort of know it's there but able to pretend it's not there and the crew and everything else it just takes a while to get yeah. used to that. So experience is, is great, no matter what kind of role, it doesn't matter. But then once I started to get a little bit of work, I was always looking for stories that I would want to see. And so whenever I could afford to wait, I would wait until it was something I liked. And if I ran out of money, well, whatever I could get. But then, yeah, after Lord of the Rings, then I had more options to choose from. And so I had a, you know, it was easier to wait a little bit more and it was I had more options of good things too. Well, so that's where I want to like I, I, from what I understand, right after the certainly the third, and probably even after just the first Lord of the Rings, probably more than ever before, you were getting opportunities to, to really pick from a lot more things that might have appealed to you. Why was it that, as the first major project post Lord of the Rings, I believe you chose to do. Hidalgo, which I remember seeing in theaters and enjoying, but I know it got it got flack. It wasn't everybody's cup of tea. Mm. Why for you was that the one that when you've got the most I options? Know. I don't know. Well, part of the problem was that it was difficult in the, you know, once Fellowship of the Ring came out, I was like, okay. But the problem was that they were always like saying, well, what we have to schedule when you're doing the reshoots. I mean, you were always tied to the Lord of the Rings. And I was like the rest of them until the end of 2003. And so to fit in something, you know, some people like Ian McKellen did a play, I remember, Mm -hmm. in between the first two. And yeah, it's contractual. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I couldn't do just anything at any point. Right. And maybe I could have waited longer. I don't know. But I I remember meeting Joe Johnson and thinking that I like the story. I like the idea of it. And I I love horses. I grew up with horses. And it seemed like a good challenge. Mm -hmm. And it is a movie that I think in part because of the... I guess in particularly in the entertainment business, you know, the sort of anti-Iraq war, and you can include me there, there's no reason to have gone and invaded Iraq. Mm-hmm. And as I said, it created a huge mess that we're going to be dealing with for Probably. generations to come. Yeah. So it wasn't like the most popular thing to go see a movie about a cowboy in a horse race <laughs> against a bunch of Arab horsemen. Did you, you know, think of that when you were taking it on or only n- afterwards? No, I didn't think about it at all. Yeah. I just thought it was a good story. And, 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 and if I did think about it, I thought, well, it's positive because it shows that he learned something from them. They learned something from him. You know, I mean, it was a big sort of studio, like a Disney movie. But it, right. there, was a, there was something to the story and there was something to going to a place you know nothing about with this gung-ho American attitude and be, having your sort of cockiness taken down or not just by how good the other horses are how good the other horsemen are <laughs> what the landscape is like and just different customs I thought that's all to the good but yeah. at the time it did okay you know but it wasn't a critically like loved movie but I have to tell you that as much probably as Lord of the Rings that's the movie that people stop me in airports really? and on the street 
you know, and, and then after that, probably the Cronenberg yeah, movies. Yeah. But that one, constantly. I've probably signed, I don't know, as many DVDs and pictures and posters from Hidalgo. Is that in America or internationally or everywhere? everywhere. Amazing. Especially in America. Often not in big cities yeah. in America, you know, but all over the place in, in Europe, a lot in South America. I mean, people really love that movie because it's a movie that it does speak to these this idea of the other mm-hmm. and getting along. And, and you enjoyed making it. Yeah, and it was fun, and it's fun to watch, and it's a movie that your kids can watch, And but a lot of grown-ups love that movie, and people who like horses, which is not just in the United States, mm-hmm. they love it, but yeah. I don't know, there's a lot of people that like that movie, I'm not <laughs> trying to make some, no, no, no. after the fact, defense, I just, I find that interesting, so like, there's a lot of movies that have that, I mean, The Indian Runner is a movie you brought up, I've had that experience a lot, where movies that I wish had had a better shake in terms of distribution, mm-hmm. At the time, you know, but then since have become a reference. That you found, there's, yeah. There's plenty of movies in the history of movies where we now think of as classics, but at the time you look back and go, oh, it didn't do well, Did or it was panned, well. yeah. or you didn't owe money. Or, and I've been in movies that, you know, The Road, mm-hmm. but it's, oh, we're, in we're that right. case, that, yeah. that was like a movie that, that was a really good adaptation by John Hillcote of a Pulitzer Prize winning book by Cormac McCarthy, much anticipated, which the, the distributor decided to dump. Because they didn't feel like putting it out in what they were contractually obligated to, you know, thousands of theaters. They put it out in, you know, hundred or less. Why and did do you nothing. think they just worried that it was too dark or what? That they just figured that they could put that money into a couple other movies that they had that year. That year. Which was uh, Inglorious like, Bastards yeah. and, and Nine. Yes. So our theaters and our... Yeah, I can't do anything. I, I did say to my agent, there's no way they're going to keep their... They have to contractually. Or what happens if they don't? Well, I think the thing says that they get sued for four million bucks. I go, in the scheme of things, first of all, I'm sure that they wouldn't. They would settle probably mm-hmm. two, three years from now for half that mm-hmm. or less, if they even have to pay anything. Yeah, it would be minimal. And in that meantime, they stand to make a lot more money by they think by doing this other thing. So I'm sure they're I used to doing. I remember interviewing you and Cody at yeah. the Toronto Film Festival that year, and you were so passionate about it, and it was a great movie, yeah. and the ironic thing is that when i interviewed the for reference the aforementioned distributor at one point mm. and asked what's the movie that you most you're mo- sorriest that got away or whatever it didn't have that was the one that was referenced so i guess they that's very ironic that they would you know because now I, I i forgot what had happened yeah. essentially with the movie but it, you just feel it got dumped essentially yeah totally did yeah they weren't honest or upfront, but they, yeah. they're not the only ones, and it's something that happens in the business a lot. So, the, more often than not, you have these kind. Of, you have to get used. To, you have to get a kind of a thick skin while remaining vulnerable and emotionally open as an actor. I was so it's say, a weird I don't know thing. how you do that. And I've been in movies that I've also, you know, been a producer element of too, like Far From Men. It was mm-hmm. a really beautiful movie that deserved a better distribution here. That was also kind of not done well, but that that happens a lot. So when a movie like Captain Fantastic starts out great, you know, starts at Sundance, mm-hmm. the beginning of last year. It's really well received. Mm-hmm. Out of Sundance, you know, Manchester by the Sea, Captain Fantastic, and probably Birth of a Nation yeah. are the most talked about mm-hmm. movies. Captain Fantastic is the only one that's invited to compete in Cannes. Goes to Cannes, wins Best Director Prize, goes to other festivals, wins audience prizes all over. I mean, people probably don't even realize that now, so it was such yeah, a while ago. That, yeah. But 
you know, steadily, steadily. But usually a movie like that is an independent movie that doesn't have a big PR budget to like promote it and keep reminding people of it. They sort of fade away and you kind of look at it on video some other day or another year and go, oh, wow, that was a really great right. movie. What happened to that? Right. It's very rare. Usually it's only one movie that does that thing. It's like, where did it come from? Mm-hmm. This little movie that could. And here we are, you know, at the beginning of 2017 and people are still talking about it. That's very rare. What usually happens is what has happened, as I said, to some other movies yeah. where I know they're good and I know now that people, there's a certain amount of people that appreciate that movie, mm-hmm. but I got to tell you at the time, Didn't it was unpleasant. Okay. Yeah. It was disappointing to everybody who worked on it. You We're know, talking the, about The Road right now. Well, the Road or any or number any of other others. movies like that. That, that. That's more often what happens. It's very unusual, first of all, to find an original story, a screenplay, as well-written as Kevin Fantastic. Mm-hmm. It's even more unusual for it, the movie to be as good as that script, right. and it's even more unusual for that movie to be supported, to be supported, right. and and be around and have such good word of mouth, and for that to mean something uh, months and months later. It's very very unusual. Mm-hmm. So I, I I've been around enough and seen that that doesn't usually happen. Right. So I'm very you're happy about that. I'm happy about that. Yeah. Before we go more into that, though, I just have to ask: since Lord of the Rings and Hidalgo. You have, I believe, not made another big studio movie. And I wonder, is that just coincidental or was there something about the no. experience that said? No, it's no, it's just worked out that way. I mean, I, I kind of, I, I'm tricky or hesitant about committing because I know if you do it right, what goes into preparing it really well shooting it really well and promoting it and some of these independent movies it can be like this one has been a year straight of work where you can't do anything else and you're kind of if you want it to even have a chance to succeed so once I say yes to something if in the middle of that which has often happened I get offered to say a studio movie I, I have to say I can't do it you know but it could have been the other way around. I could have been in the middle of a studio movie. And all so it's the... not something about the scale no, or the it's just, way it works. It's the way it's worked out. I mean, I've been in a couple movies. Another movie that I thought was really good, and I think it will stand the test of time, is a first effort by Hussein Amini, Two Faces of January. It was a beautiful movie. And that was made in a kind of a studio style. I guess that would be the closest. And then I did a movie called A La Triste, which was a Spanish movie for them it was a huge budget movie at the time and that was kind of like doing a a studio movie but you're right as far as doing a movie with you know Paramount or what have you or or, or Warner Brothers no I haven't done that since I suppose so the last topic pre Captain Fantastic I just have to ask you about is this very special rare unique fruitful collaboration that you've had with David Cronenberg that now encompasses a History of Violence from 2005, Eastern Promises from 2007, and A Dangerous Method from 2011. How did you guys first cross paths, and why do you think you were drawn to each other? Well, great good fortune there. You know, I read that script for the first movie, History of Violence, which was an adaptation uh, from a pulp novel, exploitation kind of graphic novel. And it wasn't that impressive. It was extremely violent and... It was kind of nonsense, and from my point of view, nonsensical violence, just constant like mayhem, and it was and it was fairly long, 120, 30 pages, wow. something like that. And my agent said, "Well, you know, David Cronenberg's doing this, and he would like to meet you." And I said, "Well, I don't like to meet someone unless it's 
if I don't really like the thing, it's like, what are we meeting for? Right. And I guess, you know, and then some other people say, well, you want to meet Dave Kornberg? <laughs> you know? But I just, I feel like I want to go in there and have something to talk about to really try to pursue and mm-hmm. convince them. And if I don't believe in it. And I said, well, I don't, I'm not crazy about it. And I don't know. And I think he, they got back. He said, no, I'd like to meet him anyway. And I said, okay. And I said, but don't just come out to LA for it. He goes, no, he's coming anyway for some whatever. So I met him here in Los Angeles. We had breakfast. And I was honest with it. I said, well, it's nice to meet you. I'm a fan of your work and so forth. And he's very nice, very calm. He wasn't like the Prince of Darkness or anything like <laughs> you might think from some of his movies. He was just a very regular guy, a good sense of humor, calm, a very good conversationalist. And I told him, you know, the script, I think this, he goes, I agree. I agree completely. I go, well, I think it's like really long and it's super violent. I mean, to the point where it just gets tiresome. He goes, I completely agree. And then, I mean, everything we started, and he goes, well, I'm going to fix that, which he did. I mean, he should have gotten credit for that really? uh, writing. He very nicely didn't demand that. But what he did is he took those 120-something pages and cut it down to a script that was like 70. Wow three pages or something I don't know what it was 70 something pages 77 maybe and was just that lean movie that you saw which we should remind people or yeah. tease them if they haven't seen it you're playing the Steiner owner in the middle of nowhere who turns out to have a a darker past than right. you might have assumed and that was a great experience I was a, suddenly I was working with a director that more than any other director I'd never had the experience of someone who was watching so carefully that it didn't matter how subtle my reaction was or how buried it was. He would see it, and he would, see, he would encourage me to do that and not overdo it. You know, because as an actor, you think, well, the director's not really seeing, so I have to, like, show. Right. Uh, even if it's against your instincts. Yeah. And, But he really would, was watching everything everyone was doing in a certain way that I, hadn't, I, I wasn't used to. And I really appreciated it. And when I saw the movie, I was like, yeah. This guy is amazing. And, and you uh, said, in ready, terms of yeah, ready to go back for more. Just two years later was Eastern Promises, yeah. where you were a, a Russian mobster. That one was it more about I just want to work with David again, and I'm sure you know the script is good. And w- was it? No, I like I like the story, and there were certain things just fine tuning that had to do with uh, once I started getting into it that were in terms of being as authentic as possible in terms of the language and the Russianness yeah. of it. You went and learned the Russian, right? And that David was into doing that too. But I had already, the shorthand we developed doing History of Violence was unique. It was like having an, another actor friend because his, his like passion for research and things peripheral to the story. You know, and, uh, With Eastern Promises, we were constantly communicating about things, Russian music and poetry and history and politics and you know all kinds of stuff so that was it was a constant things that you wouldn't see in the movie but Mm -hmm. would just add something to it some layer to it just mostly unspoken things but things that we talked about Mm -hmm. a lot and communicated about and then so that I mean no other director I don't think would have offered me chance to play Sigmund Freud. I was going to say, he's in his 40s, you know. There's well, the first two movies, most history of violence and Eastern Promises, are such physical parts. And with Eastern Promises in particular, I remember, and I looked it up, Ebert wrote at the time in reference to your sauna fight, he said, quote, years from now will be referred to as a benchmark, close quote. And it's true. I mean, that was insane what what you that scene and, and others as well. And and then you go, you get a Best Actor Oscar nomination, which is must have been, I'm curious what your thoughts were about that, because you, just another bit of context, as I, correct me if any of this is wrong, but 
2004, after the Lord of the Rings movies, you were invited to join the Academy and declined. And subsequently, I've had some express some reservations about just the things that that are focused on and when they're when they're picking. Well, what I they just fe- felt I felt uh, at the time. I mean, I felt uh, I, I was asked a, a, another time too, and I, I just said I I believe I'd love to help in any way that I can if there is any way to, to to promote like the restoration of film and yeah. the other great things they do. But I just felt funny about judging art. I guess, you know, in terms of voting for, you know, so forth. But I have been thinking about it since, to be honest with you, since you brought the subject up. And, mm-hmm. I mean, it is a crapshoot, this whole thing of awards. And, mm-hmm. I mean, when it did happen, like you say, in 2008, it never happened to me before. I was very happy because my mom was still alive and still conscious. And I remember I took her suddenly. Well, I was really annoyed that David Cronenberg, who still has yet never been never nominated, been nominated. That he hadn't been for history of violence, and I thought, well, Eastern Promise is for sure, and no. And again, that depends on how well the distributor does their job, frankly. And right. but I think that they were just saying, oh, look, this is falling into our lap. Vigo's being nominated for it, so they just focused on that. And I think, who knows? So I was kind of felt weird that David wasn't part of that, but I was very happy because my mom could see that and she went to the SAG Awards with me which was a great experience and she knew all the old actors and (laughs) she was pointing them out and she had no problem with going oh that's so and so and she'd get up and go over and walk (laughs) and talk to him and it was really an amazing experience and I'm glad she got to live that you know so I I just felt and I've also been asked to be on juries for festivals things that I've also for photography Mm -hmm. and and art uh, on juries and I've always declined respectfully because I didn't want to judge art I mean I make my own comparisons, and I might discuss with you whether yeah, I think a movie's right. good or not. But I don't like to officially say, "Oh, this is good and this is bad." But, but I've changed my mind since then. It's like it's all a crapshoot, and everybody's opinions are different. And even the same person's opinion is different tomorrow than yesterday, maybe or maybe, second viewing of a movie. And maybe it's helpful to some movies. I don't know. Well, I was going to say maybe being there's the saying, "Would you rather be?" outside the tent pissing in or inside the tent pissing out like here you could maybe if you join hypothetically you could influence the quality of their choices you know maybe yeah, they make yeah. some better choices no it's true so i think if i had another chance i'd probably would i would probably say yeah okay yeah i'll, I'll do it i'll say yes if that happens but and i don't think anybody else would like i say would have offered me that to play for that, right, that was I, and I, in fact i said to him i said that's crazy i mean <laughs> i'm not right for that you know because i had this image of him but as you know, what we think of for with a old man, the white beard, beard yeah. and the whole, just a whole right. vibe that was not me at all, physically or in terms of speech. And he says, "Well, I know you can do it, and I know that you have his sense of humor. And it's kind of like the kind of jokes that you and I make all the time." And <laughs> I said, "Yeah, I don't know." And and he really knew a lot about Freud, and I knew a certain amount, but I think I knew more about Jung. But it was David insisting. So then I started reading and rereading some stuff I'd read of, that Freud had written and also reading biographies of him and starting to see, focus on his sense of humor, you know, and the way he used words to defend himself as weapons, you know, because he's, like you say, he wasn't like a, a person, a man of action, mm-hmm. physical action. He was a man, of, an expert fencer right. with words, and he was admired. And, and in fact, there were several people who, writers in Germany who nominated him or recommended him for a Nobel Prize, not in science, but literature, because of how beautifully he wrote in German. Wow. And he was the kind of guy who would give an impromptu speech without notes. He could talk for two hours 
with never saying uh or anything <laughs> like that and telling little jokes all through and keeping people laughing and to the point where he a layman would understand what he was saying beautifully spoken but understandable what he was saying like very heavy concepts he was like pioneering this new science and but he was very gifted with language and all of that suddenly really appealed to me. And then as, the more I got to know the character, the more I realized, yeah, David's right about the humor and there was something about it. And I, and I liked, I realized the challenge, you know, what you point out, that as an actor I hadn't got to play a part where, 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 that was all about language. Mm-hmm. You know, there were parts of moments for Aragorn, but Peter Jackson's Aragorn is much less verbal than, than Tolkien's, yeah. you know, so... Interesting. I hadn't got to do do that really ever with a part, and I, I really had a good time because basically, for I just sat there and just was through bombs and jokes and <laughs> you know rotten eggs at people right. and disarmed them and right. countered and you know just with words and that was a great experience. So this brings us up to what I I wonder if you agree, but I I don't think I've ever been more impressed with a performance of yours then and I've been and I've been impressed with a lot of them but then Captain Fantastic I just wonder first of all do you feel like this has taken it to a new level for you in your own view I think that you always I mean I, I probably always will you always look at the movie no matter how good it is in terms of your own performance and go I could have done that better and I could have done this better you know I mean I think to some degree as long as you don't let it eat you up right. inside that's healthy. That's how you improve. You're like, eh, I could, I can do a little better. But there's no question that even as we were making it, that I knew we had something great. You know, I knew that it was one of the best original screenplays I'd ever read. Mm-hmm. I knew that we had an incredible crew and an amazing ensemble of actors. Mm-hmm. I think to most of the so-called experts, when a few weeks ago, the Screen Actors Guild nominated our movie for Best Ensemble, it may have shocked most of them, but it was not a surprise to me. Mm-hmm. You know, here we I knew what we'd made. I yeah. knew what the movie was. I knew why we had won audience awards yeah. in all kinds of festivals. I knew why Matt had won, you know, a best director prize at Cannes. It is one of the I mean, I have not seen a better ensemble. And not just that the ensemble is great, but that every element right. is is perfect for the part and does justice to the part and stands out as an right. individual. Yeah, it's just remarkable. It's not like a few great actors and then a bunch that are sort of colorful. Right. Well, we know? should just, again, to for the sake of anyone who hasn't yet seen it, and, and please do, the essentially you're you're playing Ben Cash, this former college professor who's, whose wife has passed away and who's now raising his six kids who are ranging in age from... Like seven to seventeen. Seven seventeen. Yeah. He decided to do this off the grid in the Pacific Northwest, a very unusual in these days way of raising kids and just what the rewards and, and challenges of that are. And so the movie was written and directed by Matt Ross, who many people know as Gavin Belson on Silicon Valley on HBO. He's it's only his second film and the way that he's described it is he said he knew he needed someone physically fit and intelligent for the for the main part of the father, someone also who projects integrity. His quote was, quote, the lead actor is the face of your movie, and Vigo, for me, represents nothing but, in, but integrity. The things he chooses to do and not to do speak volumes, close quote. So he knew he wanted you. How did you first hear from him, and, and was there any hesitation at all? I didn't hear from him directly. I got sent the script, and I read it 
and was blown away by it. You know, I thought, this is really something else. Depending on when they were going to go, I knew that I still had some work to do in terms of promoting. I think at the time I was promoting Far From Men mm -hmm. and a movie called How How, which is very out there, mm -hmm. kind of experimental movie that actually won a prize at Cannes mm -hmm. as well. Very unusual movie, you know, an extreme in terms of style, uh, a movie, a beautiful movie. And I take seriously the job. This is why I hesitate before I commit. You know, once I say yes, I'm in for the whole way. Mm -hmm. And that includes promoting, especially little movies. Without that, yeah, they, they're dead. Yeah. And even with that, they might not succeed. But without it, there's no way that they will reach audiences or even get the attention of, you know, critics like you and others. So I read the script. I thought it was incredible. I mean, I remember the first time I read it turning pages and actually stopping reading and not making all the notes I usually make. You know, I had my pen there because I was just really sucked mm -hmm. in and being moved and stopping and laughing out loud and going, oh, wow, I can't believe they just said that. Or <laughs> they're really going to do that? Oh, my God. You know, and then laughing, crying, and thinking. Those are the things that movie made me do just as a screenplay. Mm -hmm. You know, I thought, well, this is, I haven't seen something this good. I don't know if ever, but in years yeah maybe maybe it's all in all as far as the way the ha characters are handled and the structure and how how it does not disappoint you and never falls off this is a remarkable accomplishment mm. just in terms of writing mm. and it's constantly surprising also you know because the, at the beginning I, I look i was reading i thought okay this is really what world is this where is this where are they and then oh i see okay it's some left-wing <laughs> survivalists right. you know off the grid fantasy and they're going to run into a bunch of conservative people <laughs> and conservative obstacles and that's going to be the story and that if it's well written that could be great right. it's kind of a niche movie because you're appealing to left wing people mm -hmm. who might be interested in survivalism I guess <laughs> or being anti-establishment right. and that's all there is to it but then very quickly I realized oh it's a lot more than that and in a sense there is no heroes in the movie and there's no villains really and it's very complex, and, and nobody's always right, and the person that you think is going to be said to be right all the time turns out to be very inconsistent and contradictory and well-intentioned, but he's got some problems, and he's got some... He's going to have to make some changes. If he wants to be the dad he wants to be, all of that was appealing to me as an actor mm -hmm. and as someone who likes stories. And so when I met Matt, I said, I'd let, I think this is wonderful. And we met to have a cup of coffee ostensibly in, in Venice, mm -hmm. uh, California. And a cup of coffee that lasted like five and a half hours, you know, <laughs> talking about everything, you know, you can imagine. And in the end, you know, once I, a couple of days later, you know, realized when they had to shoot, when their window was, I said, you know, I can't do it in good conscience to these other movies. And he understood and respected mm -hmm. that. I said, I totally get it. And I think that's great. I, I would only hope that if you were doing my movie, you would treat it the same yeah. way. I said, oh, absolutely. I think that's part of being a professional, seeing the thing through. Yeah. And so I said, well, I'm going to go and try and make it, you know, with someone else. And I said, oh, of course, yeah, good luck. I hope it, you know, I can't wait to see it. Yeah. And then an actor I know who it was, was a big star and I'm not going to name there's no point said I'll do it and worked with Matt for six seven months and then suddenly left him in the lurch decided to go do something Jesus. else so what? lost Matt a year oh. it doesn't matter who it was because right. it actually it was a lucky break for me right, because right. by the time those seven months had passed I had finished my promotion for these other movies I didn't have anything else to do but I didn't I had forgotten 
yeah. about Captain Fantastic because that had already happened. It was going to be made with so and so, and I could see why, and that would attract a bigger audience and so forth. And done deal. That's the way it worked out. And suddenly, I got a communication from Matt Ross. He goes, "Look, <laughs> I didn't. He, he left me, and the part's still available. You're, you're probably not interested because I'm sure you've moved on. It was a, t- a long time ago, but I, I would be remiss if I didn't tell you that I, you are my. You continue to be my first choice, wow. and, and part's available. That's and I said, I, I'm in. I'm in. That's so cool. Yeah. And you're totally convincing this part. You seem right at home as a guy shunning modern technology and living off the land and not really caring what other people think about him and doing his own thing. Is that me projecting or is that actually an accurate read of, of you? No, I mean, there's certain things that I grew up doing as a kid, you know, going camping and things like that. And the outdoors, I you know, I like. And those landscapes are not unfamiliar because I used to live in northern Idaho and so forth. But I didn't live in a teepee and I didn't have six kids. And right. there's many things about his... <laughs> right parenting approach that are different than mine and I didn't and I don't know any parent who has given literally 100% of their waking hours even sleeping hours dreaming time energy everything to their kids it's very extreme and he's just emotionally it's just different makeup than than mine but one thing I really liked about the challenge that made me nervous until I started feeling I was doing okay was it was important that the world they lived in seemed really real and that the humor, and there is quite a bit of humor in the movie, be real in the sense that it be true situational comedy, that it come out of, that they'd be dead serious. And that's what was funny. Right. You know, about the things they were doing and saying and (laughs) and the contrast between them and other family models and people that lived outside of the forest. That's what's funny. Don't play it for laughs, you know. I mean, another director would have made a mess of it. It might have been a popular kind of comedic right, thing. Right. but And that the emotional journey of my character and any emotional moments in the story be, be real and be vulnerable. And there is this, I mean, for this character, he gives his all to his kids to finally realize after everyone else. I mean, the kids already know, his in-laws know, his sister knows, the audience knows that he's on the wrong track and that he's contradicting himself and that he's being intolerant Mm -hmm. and inflexible and all that for him to suddenly realize that everything maybe he's doing is wrong or feel that way is devastating and then but how do you do that you know don't want to do some movie exaggerated emotional but it's got to be really you got to feel it and it was just as important in this movie to have Matt Ross watching very carefully and trusting me to do it yeah, as a fellow actor and as someone who is watching performance and saying, you yeah, know, I get it, you know, whether it's humor or whether it's an emotional transition and vulnerability, you don't have to overdo it. Right. Trusting me to do that and letting me do that, in the same sense with Cronenberg and History of Violence mm-hmm. or Eastern Promises, where, no, the audience is going to understand what's happening. Don't do more than that. That's perfect and it's really full and trust what you're feeling and you know what I mean that yeah. kind of approach so that was crucial to me you know just in the making of the movie to feel like I'm not betraying what the story that Matt wrote is and what the character's going through and then so that was the trickiest part it's very subtle those little transitions where he's like well how do I write this ship and how do I how do I deal with this right. you know what it's I mean amazing. and Matt said you had written him at one point I think like a 10 page list of questions that you because you wanted to be totally clear about what this guy's motivations were and what his, you know, even down to, I think he was saying, 
how does the how does the sewage work for these guys living out in the middle of nowhere mm-hmm. and all of that? So you found that he was able to... It, and what's the food source and where what kind of stuff would grow there? Yeah. And I'd like to see the place they've come out. And I look at it well before they built yeah. the set and the forest. I said, well, here's yeah. where the sun comes up. And you're gonna, this is how much growing time you'd have. You'd have to find a clear... You know, and but he was open to that. Some directors might think, well, this is a fucking... You know, this is a pain <laughs> in the ass. I mean, I don't... I'm not... I changed my mind. Let's cast someone else. Understandable. But... I like to work with people who get ex- as excited yeah. as I do or more excited or, you know, really want to, they know they have this one opportunity to tell the story and they want to get everything out of it. And I only get that excited if I really like something. Right. And and people like that tend to understand if you're really into it and asking lots of questions right. because you want to help them make the thing they invented as good as it can possibly be. I mean, great movies really only happen when there is a great compromise mm-hmm. made by all. Mm-hmm. You know, when it's a true team sport. Mm-hmm. You know, there are exceptions where there are memorable movies where there are basically a one-man yeah, show. Right. And in particular, some, you know, some of Hitchcock's best movies. Right, right. Would they be better if he had been more collaborative or not? Probably not. That's right. a, probably a one-off. It's a right. genre of its own almost. But I think in general... Yeah, the collaborators. I think that when people... It's generally a team sport with few exceptions. And, and that's what happened. And Matt was really aware of that. He'd written this beautiful script. He prepared it really well. He cast it really well. You know, I was worried when I read the script. I said, where are you going to... I mean, to make a movie as good as the script, you first get, you got to find six genius kids. Well, that's where I wanted I, to go there. But he was confident all the time. And he was also... Whatever those kids had to say, or I did, or the cinematographer, it was all valid. The same way as Cronenberg. I mean, Cronenberg was maybe less polite sometimes about saying, well, that's the dumbest <laughs> that's idea it. I've heard all day, but keep them coming, you know? Right. And he, they all know, those kinds of directors, that in the end, they finish the painting, and, you know, all the colors bring them right. on, and I'll choose what works, what I can use. And and that's just common sense. It's a smart director who's you, open to You'd input. worked with a young kid before with The Road, with Cody Smith-McPhee, yeah. And maybe others that I'm not thinking of immediately, yeah, but people say, you know, that it goes back to as we had said at the AFI panel, it goes back to like W. C. Field saying, "Don't work with kids, don't work with animals." Here, you guys were doing both. You were doing both. Mm-hmm. Did it give you any pause? Were you part of the vetting process of these kids that would play your co-stars here? Uh, working with kids didn't give me pause and never has, because I like to prepare meticulously, and then when I show up. You know, half of what I end up doing is going to be, at least, is going to be based on what you bring to the table. What the day, the crew, the setting, but especially what the other actors do. It's like, I want something to react to. And I don't mind surprises. In fact, sometimes they help me, like, get some momentum going or something, throw me in a direction I wouldn't have come up with on my own. You know, they make me better the other actor if they're really there to play and if that's your attitude then when you're working with kids they're gonna surprise you because they're not gonna probably do the same thing from take to take especially the little ones and that's fun it's like gifts like presents they're bringing you from take to take and day to day but if you're the kind of actor who's very you know I guess kind of anal about their preparation and anal about their performance you know it's one thing to be anal about your preparation and but then to come in and whatever thing, everything I prepared, every gesture, the tear is going to roll on yeah. that line and, you know, from that eye and, you know, that kind of level. And there are people who are technically that gifted that can do it exactly that way. I've worked with some and 
and it's a, just a different way and and it's impressive how they do it and how well they do it but it's slightly less fun than it might be at least to me because they're expecting you and everyone else to adapt to what they've prepared period and they can be gracious about it but that's the way it's going to be and so there's not much room to play yeah. there is no real play you're just like okay I'm just supporting what you're doing fine because all good actors are supporting actors anyway and so that's the deal fine it would be a little more fun if we could play but, mm-hmm. you know <laughs> but if if you're that kind of actor and you're working with kids it would probably drive you crazy because the kids are not going to adapt to what you're no. you've decided to do and if you're the kind of director who wants everything said exactly the way he'd imagined it I mean Hitchcock I can't imagine would have been fond of working with kids <laughs> I don't know or for uh, it wouldn't have been necessarily fun if you were an actor working for Hitchcock. You're doing your kind of sounds like... I have like, a feeling not, but you never yeah. know until you try it. Maybe right. he would have been so fascinating because, yeah. you know, I mean, I've worked with all kinds of directors. I think the main thing you have to be uh, as an actor is attentive and flexible. Mm-hmm. That's how you'll learn to do it better. And you're not going to probably run into the same type of directing style in your next job. So you better be ready to change. Right. You know, some directors like to rehearse, some don't. Some people like to do one or two takes. Some people like to do 30, whether you don't need it or not. Right. Depends on the budget. Right. Some of them talk to you, some of them don't. Some of them can help you, some of them mm-hmm. can't. Some actors are there to play, some aren't. You, you've got to, your job is to do your part well, right. whether you're going to get help or not. Well, my final question is just that, to remind people, this movie that premiered almost exactly a year ago at Sundance went to Cannes, where Matt Ross won Best Director, has now gone from being this little indie movie that was under a lot of people's radar to a year later, you're a Golden Globe and SAG nominee for mm-hmm. your performance, and maybe Spirit even more special, Spirit, Spirit Awards, Awards mm-hmm. it goes on and on. So people have caught up with that, and then probably the cherry on the cake is that the Cash family is getting back together on whatever it is later this month for the SAG Awards. 29th of July. 29th of January. Or January. Where July. you... <laughs> the, the, the award season feels like that, but yeah. uh, you will be there together as nominees for Best Ensemble of the Year. and That's the best one. That's the one that made me the happiest. When I heard that, I was jumping, and they were too, and the emails between all of us was like a barrage. It was like, we're going for it, and the yeah. youngest one was, I'm streaking. <laughs> you know, I was like, well, okay. No, and, so. But, but we're, that, no matter what happens, and the likelihood is we're not going to win, mm-hmm. just like the likelihood was that we're not going to get nominated right. for anything, we're going to have fun no matter what. It's going to be a party. We're going to have a great time before, <laughs> during, and after. Right. But I'm not... I'm not that surprised we got it. I'm pleased. Right. I'm surprised only in the sense that it doesn't usually happen because the hype machinery is kind of, there's a kind of a prefabricated nature to it, even though critics like to think that they're really weighing all the odds <laughs> and the options. They're not really. There's It gets to be kind of cold and it gets limited right. by towards the end of the season, especially the upper echelon. Like Even just the release dates limit it. You know the look for what comes out during certain oh, dates. Oh, sure, yeah. And the fact that we came out the first week of July. Unconventional. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it's like that it's here is great. But I, a few weeks ago, if I said to you, I'm probably going to get nominated, but most importantly, we're going to get Best Ensemble nomination for SAG, I think, I don't know what you would have said, but I think most people... In your position or anybody that follows what's going on in, in the movie business would have said, you're dreaming. There's no way that's happening, right? 
We would have hoped, but I mean, yeah, also well, that would been be a little great. But it's yeah, a nice, right. nice idea, but it's not likely to happen right. at all. Well, I would say to those same people that I'm holding out hope that that Matt Ross will get an original screenplay nomination <laughs> from the Academy, yeah, and that we will get a Best Picture nomination from the Academy. That's what I'm hoping for. Well, I wish I had a vote, but uh, <laughs> I hope I you will soon. Yeah, <laughs> now you want one. Yeah, I, wish uh, <laughs> I take that back. Well, thank you so much. You're, it's it's been so fun watching your work and interviewing you over the years. I looked at, when I was preparing for this. First time I got to interview was almost exactly 10 years ago. I can't yeah. believe it. So I'm sure it's meant more to me than to when, you. But where, where was it? That first one would have been tied to what movie was coming out in 2007? Was that The Road? It would have been East, Eastern Promises. Eastern Promises. So Toronto, Toronto. I think. Yeah. Yeah, 2007. So, yeah, we got a favorite, you know, like audience. Yeah, audience award that year, and that was the beginning of that. Right. I was convinced. I remember that season. That the, the, I mentioned this disappointment about Cronenberg not getting yeah. his due, even though he's considered one of the greatest living directors yeah. in world, you know, cinema. Yeah. I remember that that year, people went, "Wow, another great one from him!" You know, two in a row right. that are really and, and that are not only being noticed but people are going to the movies to see and I remember thinking and hearing from people well he was kind of overlooked you know he didn't get a nomination he should have for History of Violence right. well now this will be obviously the chance to and everybody was like yeah it's going to happen and I think you know the distributor probably assumed it would happen without because during that fall season so many movies come out yeah. which is why it's so unusual for our Captain Fantastic to be talked about this late you know Eastern Promise the same thing you know they saw something happened which had never happened to me which I, I kept getting nominated but what about everyone else you know and especially what about the director and unfortunately it didn't happen but that's that was that year 2007 2007 and what they say is the only the only club more impressive than club of Oscar nominees and winners is the, the club nom- of people that weren't because when you look you're talking about Hitchcock the only Oscar he ever got was an honorary and you he can go on and nominated on either, no, so right. I mean there's an element of Horseshit cool. about all of it, but it is cool, and it, it can help a a movie to be seen, which is what this movie deserves to to be. So, yeah. I mean, if it's a big studio movie that's made money and it gets nominated, well, it's really icing on right. the cake. But for a small movie like Captain Fantastic, or even a movie like Eastern Promises, yeah. it means the world to it. I mean, Eastern Promises made a ton of money mm-hmm. based on those nominations yeah. that 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 we got for that movie. It did really well. Just keeps the momentum going. And and Captain Fantastic, I'm sure is there's a lot more people downloading it or you know yeah. watching it pay per view. Many many more. Yeah. Just because we got those those couple of nominations. That's great. Well, thank you again. I really thank appreciate you. it. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. Laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.